Good morning, church. Hey, guess what? We're in the book of John this morning. Hey, that, yay! That's what I like to hear, yay! This is, a, uh, this is a great, well, there are 66 great books, but this is a really good book, right? And I enjoy uh, spending time in it, enjoy, I enjoy walking through it. We came to an interesting part, though, these last several weeks. Um, a long time ago, if you can remember back, like many, many weeks, we hit chapter 11 of John. Chapter 11 starts what we call like the passion narrative or the week of passion when Jesus is, is coming into Jerusalem. Um, we see uh, that that chapter opens up with the, the holiday or the festivities of Passover quickly approaching. We know that Jesus goes to the town of Bethany about six days before Passover. It's from that town of Bethany that Jesus leaves and moves and goes into Jerusalem we call it the triumphal entry. You remember what happened as he was going into Jerusalem and they were throwing down palm leaves and they were yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Right? And they were chanting this as Jesus came into the town as he rode in on a donkey. And then the narrative continues as Jesus gets to Jerusalem and now he's teaching in the city. He's teaching in Jerusalem and we see uh, that some people heard his teaching and scripture tells us they came and believed in him. We know that other people heard his teaching, they liked it, they didn't necessarily believe that he was a savior, but they, they heard his teaching and did not believe, and then we yet know there was another group that heard his teachings and hated him, right? They hated him even more than they did before, and that was the Jewish leaders, or primarily made up of the Jewish leaders. And this is what began the plot for the Jewish officials to kill Jesus, to kill him. And just as we are beginning to see the plot build and the tension rise, John takes us on a little detour of the narrative. And in chapter 13, we go into the farewell discourse for several chapters, which is Jesus' final teaching to his disciples as they're up in the upper room and as they start moving. Then in chapter 17, we hear Jesus' prayer to his father. Right, so we took a little time out from the narrative, but now as we go back into, or as we start, we go back into the narrative in chapter 18, that narrative is going to pick up. Jesus and his disciples, they're on their way across the Kidron Valley, they've gone into the Olive Garden, he's sitting with them in the garden, and that's where we'll pick up in chapter 18. But as we will see that Jesus is teaching in his prayer, the farewell discourse, and the things that he taught his disciples, the things that he prayed to his father, they weren't interruptions to the narrative. They actually gave the things that are about to happen some validity, some substance. And as we go ahead and start reading this, it's John expects his readers, right? He expects you as we read through this to interpret the rest of this narrative in line with Jesus' teaching from the preceding chapters. So if you're online and you haven't watched, you've got to just pause it and go back and watch them. The rest of you just stay with me. Here we go, right? But as we look at things today, we're going to be based on what Jesus taught in the farewell discourse, what Jesus prayed to his Father. And the whole point of that is so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that by believing, we will have life, eternal life, in him. That should sound pretty important, because that is actually the, the mission, right, the purpose of the entire book of John. And so just remember as we 
read through this, several times in Jesus' teaching, he told his disciples about events that were about to happen. Right? He said, hey, this is about to happen. Do you remember why he told them that? So that they would believe. Right? Remember in John 13, he told them that one of you, he's talking to 12 disciples at that time, one of you is going to betray me. And after he says that, he says, I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does pay, take place, you may believe that I am he. Right? That you may believe that I am the Savior. And then again, <clears throat> he told his disciples, hey, I'm going to go to the Father. I am going to die. I'm going to go up into the heavens. I'm going to go be with the Father. And after he tells them that, he says, and now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. And as we continue to follow Jesus to the cross this morning, my prayer is that you will not see Jesus as a victim, or maybe even a a brave man who reacted to circumstances out of his control. But as we read through this narrative today, that we will see Jesus for exactly who he said he was, a sovereign Savior. So let's go ahead and open your Bibles to chapter 18 if you haven't opened there yet. We're going to begin in chapter 1. And I'm just going to begin to read uh, through this passage, and I will end uh, at the end of chapter, or excuse me, verse 27. 18, verse 1. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And so he answered them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it back and struck the high priest's servant when cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that my father has given me? And so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And first they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. And since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple who, had known, who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. And now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, and Jesus answered them, I have spoken 
openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Are those who have heard me what I said to them, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And Annas sent to him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. And so they said to him, you also are one of his disciples, aren't you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. And church, as we look at this passage, I just want to spend a few minutes and just point out a few things from this passage that prove that Jesus is our sovereign Savior, that he is in complete control of everything. The first thing that I want to look at is that Jesus is obedient while being in complete control. Right, in the events leading to the arrest of Jesus, it has already become clear that this whole scenario was anticipated. Right? Jesus knew it was coming, but it was also planned by Jesus. He orchestrated all these events. He knew what was going to happen. In Matthew's account, we see Jesus is praying in the garden before this mob arrives, and Jesus prays, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus knew what was coming, right? The, the cup of God that he is referring to both in Matthew and in this passage of John that he said he must drink, that is the wrath of God. And Jesus knows that he is about to face the complete wrath of God. But still, Jesus was obedient to the will of his Father. He did not resist his Father's will because he came to do his Father's will and finish the work that his Father had given him to do. And we know in in Philippians, Paul writes to the church that Jesus, referring to Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus knew what was coming. Jesus fully knew what lay before him. He went to the garden out of obedience for his Father's will. Right? Jesus didn't select the garden as a place to hide, but he selected that garden as a place to be found. Right? He sent Judas off on his, his fool's errand, and he goes to the place where Judas could count on finding him. Right? Judas, you know I will be here. Go do what you must do. I will be at the garden. Jesus has deliberately set the stage for his capture, for his arrest. It's in the darkest of night. There's no crowds that are going to rise in his defense. There's no group of people that are going to support him or interfere with the actions that needed to take place for that night that Jesus had planned. And then we see that Jesus takes the initiative. As we read that, it says that he leaves the garden to confront the group that has come to arrest him. Right? As we read that, it makes it sound that there was a garden that had walls. This was not uncommon at that time in the, in the culture out there, but it was a private garden. It probably had walls. And Jesus goes outside the entry, and he confronts the people who came to arrest him. He knew exactly why they were there. In the same way that he commanded Judas to go do what you were going to do and do it quickly, he goes to the mob so that they could do what they were going to do, so they could fulfill their part of the plan. And again, Jesus with full knowledge of what was going to occur in the coming hours. 
right? Scripture tells us that he was knowing all that was going to happen to him. And in this moment, he offers up his life in obedience to his father. He wasn't a martyr that was captured by the ill winds of a cruel fate, but deliberately and intentionally and exactly to, according to the plan that he made, he let them arrest him. And during this entire event, through his obedience to the Father, Jesus occupies the center of the stage and he directs everybody else. He directs what is going on in these events. The soldiers, the disciples, and the Jewish leaders are all just supporting actors that are following the lead of the master, that are following the lead of Jesus, that are following the, the, the rules of the producer and as he plays this out. Jesus had already told them what to do. Jesus already told his disciples what was going to happen. He says in this passage, this is going to happen so that the words that he had spoken would be fulfilled. Jesus is not surprised in any way. At no time in this passion narrative is Jesus' control over every action, over every breath, every word that is spoken. At no time is Jesus' control ever in doubt. And the second point that we see this is that Jesus submits while retaining his total authority. And as I was reading through this story, it reminded me of the, the show that maybe some of you have seen, The Undercover Boss. And if some of you aren't familiar with that show, what happens is the CEO of some large company goes and he goes to one of his stores or locations and he dresses up and he acts like he's one of the employees and he kind of has to do what those employees tell him to do. He kind of submits to those employees. And then at the end of the show, he reveals who he is and the, the employees, they all stumble over themselves and it's really cool because he does great things. He gives them lots of money. He gives them some pretty cool things. Nothing as cool as eternal life, right? But he gives them some things. But what's even better is when something happens and the CEO has to reveal himself in the middle of the show, right? Something went bad. He doesn't give up his authority, right? He, never, he might be acting. He might put on some fake clothes, but the whole time he is in complete control. And when something happens in his store or his location, he takes off the mask and he reveals who he is and he maintains his complete authority. And we see this that is the mob made up of the Jewish officials and the Roman guards and the exact number of that mob is, is debated and people have been fighting about it for years. Let's just say it's somewhere between 200 and just under 1,000 people came to this garden to arrest Jesus and his 11 disciples. So just... To play it safe, here's what we're going to say. We're going to say there's 100 people, right? There's 10 times more than Jesus and his band of disciples sitting there. And they come to arrest him. They come with weapons and torches. And they come with the, the authority of the Roman government to arrest Jesus. Jesus and his 11 pretty much homeless guys that are sitting there, uh, the Roman army and the Jewish leaders come to arrest them. And I want you to look at what happens next. And Jesus reveals his authority and all the guards fall all over themselves. We, we don't know exactly what made the soldiers fall to the ground. The point is not how it happens, but why it happens. When they ask, Jesus asked them, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. The, the literal words that Jesus said is ego ami. Right? They said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, ego ami. Literally translated, that means I am. Right? It is the same exact words 
that Jesus used when they talked about the seven I am statements found in John where he expressed his divinity, where he expressed that he was God. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Was all ego a me. The same words that they used when they said we are looking for Jesus of Nazareth. It was not lost on the Jewish leaders there, and it wasn't even lost on the Romans as part of the mob as they stumbled over his words. They fall to the ground, and throughout Scripture, we see that this is how people respond to divine revelation. As we read through Scripture, we see that's exactly how the prophet Ezekiel responded. We see that's how the enemy of God at the time, King Nebuchadnezzar, responded. We see that's how Daniel responded. We see that's how Paul, formerly Saul, responded when God revealed himself to him. And then even when we go through Revelation, we see the author of the Gospel of John responded in the same way when God revealed himself to him. He fell to the ground. And their collapse reveals that Jesus was not arrested in his weakness. But when Jesus was arrested, he was still maintaining his position of authority. But it doesn't just stop there. Jesus tells them that when they arrest him, to only take him and leave his disciples. What makes me interested at this, or what shows his authority here, is that even after Peter slices off one of the servants of the high priest's ear, they left him there. Right? They didn't arrest him. The servant of the high priest was probably sent by the high priest to lead this mob. And right behind Judas, he was leading these people to Jesus. He was a key figure. Peter slices off his ear, and the guards just leave him there. They don't arrest him. They don't detain him. They just leave him there because Jesus, as he is being arrested, is telling everybody how things are going to go, and you are not to touch my disciples. And this brief encounter affirms Jesus' authority over every person and every event and even his own arrest. He is not some victim that's unable to maintain control of this crazy dynamic situation. He is in complete control and he has total authority and everybody in that garden knows who's in control and who the boss is. And then as we continue, we see that even though Jesus is rejected and denied, he will still offer grace to them at the cross. Right? The nation of Israel is now represented by the high priest. And we see these kangaroo courts that Jesus is going to. And he's standing in the presence of the, uh, of the high priest. And the high priest represents the nation of Israel. It represents the, the Jewish nation. And they are, he is standing in the presence of the promised Messiah. God has finally sent the Messiah and the high priest and the nation of Israel are now standing there in his presence. If you look back at the Jewish history, they had received the supreme gift of a covenant relationship with God. No other nation had that relationship. Right? It was the Jews that received the written law and the promise of the Messiah to come through the line and the promise of his eternal kingdom. And now the Jews, in the form of the high priest, are standing in front of Jesus. And instead of falling before him and adoring acknowledgement, we find Aeneas, right? the, the father-in-law of the high priest, the one that's actually ru- ruling what's going on, directing what's going on, because that's what father-in-laws do, try to do. Phil, I love you, man. But... <laughs> 
But we see that he is trying to dictate those events, but at no time does Jesus ever lose control. No time does Jesus ever lose control, and they are being rejected, rejected, rejected. We find that the high priest, we find that Annas, he's not sitting there worshiping God. He's not sitting there worshiping the Messiah. He is actually trying every trick in the book to find a way to have him killed. Right? Jesus is interfering with what I got going on, and so now the Jews are trying to kill him, and they reject him. Then we see one of Jesus' closest disciples reject him. Peter had witnessed Jesus' miracles. He had seen Jesus' glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. He had seen Jesus feed the 5,000. He had been with Jesus when the lame had leaped. He had been with the Jesus when the blind could now see. He was there when the paralyzed carry their beds. He was even with Jesus when the dead were risen. He had heard Jesus' teaching. Right? He had heard all of his teaching, including the warnings of what was going on right now, of this current situation. He also knew of the approaching crisis of Jesus going to the cross. However, three times publicly, he said, I am not with Jesus. I do not know this man. In the moment when Jesus needed a friend most, when Jesus needed somebody to, to love him, Peter turned his back on him. Right? One of his closest friends turned his back on him and walked away. And while Peter is in the courtyard denying his Lord, Jesus is on trial, about to go to, go to the cross, to go to his death for that very sin that Peter is committing at that time. Peter, by his own words, had been a witness to Christ's suffering. And by his own denials, at this moment, he is contributing to the suffering of Christ. Peter denies Jesus for the third time, and the rooster crows. And it's at this time that we have the complete fulfillment of Jesus' words to Peter when Peter said he would lay down his life for our Lord. And Jesus said, no, you won't. The the rooster will crow, and you will have denied me three times. But even as the rooster was crowing, Jesus was still loving Peter. Just a couple hours earlier, Jesus was praying. He knew all that was going to happen. He knew that Peter was going to fail him. He had already told Peter, you're going to deny me three times. But as he prayed to his father, he said, I still love them. I love them to the end. Church, it's not our sins that separate us from the love of Jesus. It's Jesus' love of us that separates us from our love of sin. It's Jesus' love for us that separates us from sin's power, sin's guilt, and sin's the things that shame us. It is the love of Christ that sets us free. And we see right here, Jesus is taking deliberate and controlled steps to the cross for one reason, so that we'd be set free from our sins. This is and always has been the plan of our Savior. All the way back to Genesis 3, him and his father made this plan that he would go to the cross for us so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be healed, so that we could be restored, so that one day we could be counted as righteous and stand in his glory singing holy, holy, holy. This is all part of the plan. Jesus came to die because through his death he brings salvation to sinners who were cut off from God. Plan A. 
And just as he has taught for the last three years, he even challenges those that are listening, go ask the people what I taught. Go ask them. I didn't say anything in surprise. It wasn't that I just had these 11 guys sitting in some smoke-filled room and we were passing secrets around. Jesus taught in public places about the coming Messiah. Jesus taught that he was the coming Messiah. Just in this chapter alone, or this gospel alone, we talk about the seven I am's. Jesus said, I am God. And I'm the living water. I'm the bread of life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. These were not secrets. Jesus talked to these time and time and time again. The day has been coming for some time. It's time for Jesus, the day that Jesus would be hung on the cross was coming. It was a part of the plan. Jesus is innocent, but he's no victim. Jesus is not a victim in this situation. He has not lost control over his circumstances or the, the situation. Right? Ms. Fletcher, Eliza Fletcher, who's out running, was a victim. And our hearts should break as we read a story of a a woman who was out running and then senselessly murdered. It wasn't her fault. She was innocent. It doesn't matter what time she was running. It doesn't matter what she was doing. She was out exercising, and some person, a man, took her, murdered her, and he is responsible for those actions. She was a victim. She, she lost control of the situation. For whatever happened, she lost control, and she became a victim, and that man is responsible for her death. When we look at the death of Jesus, who is responsible for the death of Jesus? Is it Judas? I mean, ultimately, he was the one that sold out, right? He was the one that went to the, the Jewish leaders and got the Roman guards and brought them to Jesus, and they were the ones that arrested him. Was it Judas? Or, or maybe it was the Jewish leaders. They're actually the ones that held these fake trials in order that Jesus could be convicted of a crime and killed. So is it their fault? Maybe it was the Romans, because technically they're the only ones who were allowed to kill people under the Roman rule. So they were the ones that drove the, the, the nails through his hands. They were the ones that left him on the cross. They were the ones that proved that he was dead. They were the ones that did the execution. In the church, we can't forget. Prophet Isaiah tells us, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So was it us? Was it you or me? Was it our sins? Was it my sins that we put on the Lord? We're not off the hook. We're not clean in this whole thing because Scripture tells us Jesus had to die because of our sins. Right? We're involved in this, and if we look at all these answers, we could say, yeah, those are, those are all correct. In part, However, in this narrative, John shows us that every step of the way to the cross is planned, it's orchestrated, and it's controlled by Jesus. Earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus is sovereign through this whole process. His life was not taken from him. He lays it down willingly. He voluntarily sacrificed himself to fulfill the plan of God. As his power and his authority, he, he demonstrated not a breath was taken or a word uttered that de- did not meet his sovereign approval. If Jesus was simply a victim, then compassion would be the appropriate response. But as we read the narrative, we know 
Jesus was not a victim. Jesus deliberately planned to go to the cross. Jesus deliberately planned to drink the cup, right? to face the wrath of God, to suffer the agony of the cross for you and me. And the fact that he would do that demands way more than compassion. Now, but Jesus' act of bravery is going to the cross should do no more than to, or should do more than just motivate us to be bold witnesses in our lives. Right? That self-dependency that where we start thinking, oh, we can do this, slowly leads us to walk down the same path that Peter walked down. That I can do this, that I'm strong enough, that I don't need you to do it. Theologian Bruce Malign, he asked this question. How many Christians live with a continual sense of failure because of their inability or unwillingness to stand clearly for Christ in their public lives? He says this, he goes, like Peter, we find ourselves drawn step by step into ever deeper compromise until existence is a continual denial and worship with God's people on Sunday instead of renewing and revigorating us serves only to underline the hypocrisy of our lives. Man, that should hurt just a little bit. I remember several years ago as I was leading small groups, I had a small group leader come to me and and asked for recommendations. I said, hey, you know what you should teach? You should teach this book on evangelism. And his response to me was, we are all mature Christians. We don't need to know how to do evangelism. We don't need to do a study on evangelism. And I said, okay, in the last week, how many people in your small group have shared the good news of Jesus with somebody? The next week, I saw him at church. He said, hey, can you order me those studies? (laughs) And I said, hey, I'm just, just curious, just curious, when, when was the last time that somebody in your group, just curious, and I remember he just looked at me, and he said, Pastor, it's been years. I'm not even sure people outside of our Christian circles know that we love and follow Jesus. Here's the problem, church. Unfortunately, we are too much like Peter, right? And we will yell, especially when we're in the church, right? When there's no threat, we'll tell everybody, I'll, I'll die for Jesus, but we're not willing to live for him. Right? We're not willing to live for him. In the moment we are faced with something tough, we're quick to say, Jesus who? Right? Who is Jesus? Like if we're willing to live for Jesus, then we should be telling people about Jesus. And that's, that's what he asks us to do, to make disciples of all the nations. We should be telling people about Jesus. We should be discipling people. Well, the simple question is, when was the last time did you share the gospel with somebody? Right? Who are you discipling right now? When did you last serve somebody who wasn't like you for no other reason but to give God the glory? Imagine was the last time you served somebody you probably didn't even like. But for the glory of God, you served them. When was the last time you skipped a prayer in a public place so people wouldn't think you were weird? And I still remember a pastor and and. I think I remember this because it resonates. He said he never misses a prayer when he's in public. He says, sometimes I drop my fork, and I said, dear George, bless everybody for this food, and everybody, amen, right? He says, I get that prayer in. When was the last time that you were broken over your inability to live for Jesus? 
the simple fact that Jesus needed to go to the cross for us should not only remind us of our weakness and our failures, but it should make us aware of our need for the cross, right? Our need for a savior. The simple fact that Jesus had to go there should make it know how important it is for us. And as we look at Jesus, as we continue this narrative over the next couple weeks, as we look at Jesus walk to the cross, our hearts should rejoice, right? Our hearts should sing that as the sovereign Savior, Jesus willingly went to the cross to die for you and me. And this was the plan from all along. The call to the cross is not a call for compassion. It's not a call for bravery. But it's a call for complete dependence on and faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is the cross that lets us know. It's the cross that reminds us. It's the cross that points to. It's the cross that proves that Jesus is our sovereign Savior. He is in control of everything, and he has died for you and me. Church, in just a few minutes, we're going to prepare to take the elements of the Lord's Supper. And I set one over here. If you have one, you can go ahead and open it. And I'll take Oscar's. You got it. You got it. You're the best. She needs one. Thank you, Carla. And as we take of this juice, as we eat this bread, we're reminded of Christ's willingness to go to the cross. This bread that we hold, this cracker that we hold, symbolizes Jesus' body that was broken on the cross. And it was bearing the full weight of our sin and God's wrath for us. And as we hold this cup, without spilling it, as we hold this cup, it should remind us of the cup that Jesus drank, right? The, the wrath of God, the cup that Jesus had was full of his wrath, full of his judgment. But in God's mercy, he gave that cup to his son, not to his enemies. The cup that we could have, right? Into the hands of his enemies, the ones that are now his children through faith in him. It's a cup that is filled with blood and is to remind us of Jesus' blood that was shed for the remission of our sins. But it is this blood that reminds us that the price or the debt has been paid for our sins on the cross. That on the cross it was finished. That the plan to restore us back to right relationship with God was when our sovereign Savior went to the cross and shed his blood and said, It is finished. We are healed and we are restored and we are forgiven. And when we eat this bread and when we drink this cup, we are to do so in remembrance of him. We are to do so to remember who he is, that he is sovereign, that he is in complete control. And out of his sovereignty, he went to the cross and died for you and me because it was the only way possible. It was the only plan he had and he did it because he loved you so as we study these next weeks as we look at this passion of the week we should remember 
that this was the plan and there's no better demonstration of God's love for us. And as we eat this bread, think of that body that was broken for you. And church, as we take this cup and drink this juice, don't As you drink this juice, this is not God's wrath. This is not a time of mourning. This is a time of joy. Remember that it was this blood that was shed so we could be forgiven. It was this blood that was shed that symbolized us giving our sins to him and him giving his righteousness to us. Let your hearts be filled with joy as we remember him together. Dear Heavenly Father, we are, we are so grateful for your son as we take this time in these next few weeks as we go to the time in history when you sent your son to die on the cross because of your love for us. Lord, we would just pray as we would remember this. We would recognize our sins and we would repent of those sins. But Lord, we just pray you would fill our hearts with joy and remembering how much you loved us. And as we study the demonstration of your love for us, Lord, we just pray that our hearts would just be filled with joy as we experience your grace and your mercy. Lord, we are so grateful for your son, Jesus. We are so grateful for the life that he lived, the death that he died, and the resurrection that he came back for us. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your son's name of Jesus we ask all of these things. Amen.